Hello, it's Big Boy Bloater here for the Blues Podcast. We'll be taking a little break soon, but Series 2 is on its way, so keep your eyes and ears open for that. Uh, let us know who you would like to see or hear on the Blues Podcast. Uh, head over to our social media channels. Uh, that is Instagram, if you're an Instagrammer. The Blues Podcast Official. Or if you're on Facebook, then go to facebook.com forward slash the blues podcast official. Uh, send us in your suggestions for guests and stay tuned for season two. Hi, I'm Kim Simmons with Savoy Brown and this is the Blues Podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another edition of the Blues Podcast. I'm Big Boy Bloater and I tell you what, I've got a real legend of the blues with me here today for a little chat. Uh, he's been in the business over 50 years. I mean, he's made so many albums, I, I can't even count them on all my extremities. It's, it's incredible. He's played with loads of blues legend. He is a blues legend himself. It's the one and only, the fantastic Kim Simmons. Hello, Kim. How are you doing? Oh, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you so much. Oh, nice well, to a, a man with a wonderful career, I would say, you know, but um, yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, actually. You know, I'm, uh, of course, I've been living in the States now for a long, long time. And uh, it, uh, I'm still creative and I'm still enjoying playing guitar. I love playing guitar. I love listening to guitar, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's... Um, you know, I've still got the energy, the nervous energy that propels me. So that's I, uh, good. I haven't got the energy anymore. <laughs> You're doing well. <laughs> uh, or maybe I'm just maybe I'm just doing that for the camera. You know, <laughs> but you know, we have our ups and downs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Kim, I always like to start these little chats by going right back. Uh, and I know for you, right back, it's quite a long way, but um, right. I, I find it quite interesting, uh, especially for, for from you. Lots of the people I speak to on the Blues podcast, uh, I ask them how they got into blues in the first place, and they will say, oh, by listening to, you know, I got into it through the 60s bands and, you know, all, all those guys who were reviving the music, and then I went back and heard, you know, Howling Wolf and, and Little Walton and all those kind of guys. I mean, you were you were there before that kind of blues wave, though, weren't you? How how did you get into blues uh, so early? Uh, yeah, it started. Uh, you know, as most of us, you know, we have a family member usually. You know, a brother, sister. In my case, a dad. You know, in my case, my elder brother, seven years older than me. So uh, he started buying uh, out records. I was about six years old, fifty three. I think his first record he bought was Johnny Ray Cry which right, yeah. is regarded as one of the you know pivotal records for edgy pop music, you know. And uh, so I would sit by the dance set record player, you know, listening to that for hours. And then he would, uh, then, of course, Bill Haley came along and uh, with Rocker on the Clock. Then it, I was, you know, seven or eight. Uh, and Elvis. Uh, and the closest we could get to those people were by the movies, you know, were, I think, uh, rock, rock, rock was a great uh, rock and roll movie from yeah. the fifties. Uh, Jimmy Cavello, just, yeah, yeah, he, exactly. Jimmy Cavello and the House Rockers, yeah, I played with oh, Jimmy sure. a couple of years back. He was fantastic. He, he's fantastic. 
And so we would go to, he'd take me to those movies. Uh, flash for, so throughout the 50s, you know, I was listening to a lot of uh, uh, conglomeration of rhythm and blues, gospel music, jazz, blah, 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 rock, you know, uh, via my brother. Uh, flash forward to the early 60s. And then uh, those artists started to come over uh, into uh, more so to, uh, I think from 59 on maybe didn't, that Buddy Holly came over in 59. Yeah. But I started to go with my brother to shows in London where we had moved from Wales and a family did. Uh, so we would see, you know, Little Richard, Fats Domino, uh, wow. all the tour, all the American artists that came over. Uh, and then that would be 61, 62, 63. All of a sudden we had those blues festival tours, you know, where yeah. Chicago blues guys came over, uh, Howling Wolf, uh, uh, Willie Dixon and so forth. So uh, I was still slightly too young to see those shows, but they would be on TV, you know, so I would see yeah, Sonny right, by yeah. Williamson on TV. And then lo and behold, I was about 16, and uh, I did get to see Howling Wolf at the Marquee Club. I got to see Jimmy Reed at the Flamingo Club. All of a sudden, I was able to see, the, you know, the great artists that since I was about 13 years old, I'd been listening to. So I'd had all these influences you know, doo-wop, rock and roll, R&B, yeah. gospel, jazz. And then uh, in, uh, I think it was maybe uh, 63 that, or even earlier, that I suddenly realized that it was Chicago blues that was talking to me. Uh, and uh, right. yep. because up until that point, I just liked all black music, anything, you know. And uh, But at that point, it was, wow, you know, this this is... You hear Freddie King, you heard Earl Hooker, you heard Otis Rush, and it was like, this is the future of guitar. I recognized it straight away as a young teenager. And, of course, when you're that young, you want to be part of the future. So um, I started to uh, got myself a guitar and started to copy Freddie King. <laughs> right. Nice. Good place to start. I think yeah. uh, you're talking about the, uh, the, um, the American tours that came to Britain in the, uh, the early 60s, sort of 61, 63. Uh, the, the great American folk tour thing they called right, it, didn't they? Right, um, yeah. Uh, I, I think f for them, uh, America had kind of dropped the blues by then, hadn't they? They kind of like moved on to something. They didn't, didn't want that anymore. So coming to England was like a second um, wave for the, a lot of those blues artists. And, uh, you know, I guess lots of people like yourself were desperate to see these these artists who you've heard on record for all these years. And it was uh, it was it was it was a great thing. It was I, I always get quite fascinated about all these guys being on the bus together, wondering how that must have been. And uh, yeah, they were taken seriously. And, and yeah. I think uh, suddenly they were, they were true artists. You know, I think we, we were able to see them from a distance. Uh, and uh, because they are true folk artists, you know, I think a lot of the blues artists, when I say folk, I don't mean the genre of folk. I mean, oh, yeah. folk, in general, like there would be folk painting or folk, you know, it was folklore. Yeah, it, it, it's easy to miss the art in folk art, you know, because uh, you'll see somebody painting do a stick figure, you know, well, anybody could do a stick figure, but you know, certain artists made art out of painting yeah. stick figures, and so uh, it's the same with blues and the same with music, you know, that was. Uh, it would it would be easy for a lot of people to miss the uh, the beauty of the blues at the time, but of course we had the distance from America. We were able to see 
and listen and appreciate it with a, you know, uh, for what it was as great art. Yeah. And uh, uh, so uh, I think that, yeah, so that's why I think they, they were very popular in Europe, that distance thing we could see a little more clearly. I like what you said about the stick figure idea. I, I think um, that that's a really good analogy of it. I think um, uh, maybe if you listen to someone like John Lee Hooker, and you you would say, well, you know, that guy just plays one chord all the time, and he's just, you know, he's just. But it's what he does with that one chord, isn't it? It's the way, yeah, yeah he's just playing one chord, just one riff. But what he does with it—that's the artistry right there, isn't it? That's the excitement. Oh, it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's there's something in you know he's something in his voice. You know, that's the other thing too. You know, yeah. why I like Hooker, of course, I like uh, Howling Wolf. Uh, it's the same with someone like Paul McCartney. You know, flash forward to, into our world now. Uh, uh, Paul McCartney could sing anything, and you want to listen to his voice. He's just got that voice that is, yeah, you know, so charming. And uh, in a way, it's the same with, you know, Howling Wolf. I'm not saying that Howling Wolf was a charming thing, but, you know. <laughs> I've heard some stories, but, yeah. It, it was totally arresting, that voice. Yeah. Hooker was totally arresting. You wanted to hear what he was going to sing next, you know. And yeah. It, it was, uh, yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, it's hypnotic, I would say. I was... Uh, I was talking to someone else about Howlin' Wolf the other day, and we were uh, discussing uh, Smokestack Lightning, the song. And that that's just one riff all the way through. But right, right. Hubert Sumlin playing that riff, it's hypnotic. I could listen, I get sucked into it. I could listen to it for hours. It's just, I think I find it brilliant. It's just, it's such a great riff. I could just listen I to know, it over and over again. And then, and then you've got Wolf on top of it, just, you know, belting it out. Um, I mean, just a voice yeah. for the ages, you know. And, yeah. Uh, I backed up Johnny Hooker on a tour in the UK yes, in 1967. Yeah. So that was uh, that was pretty exciting. We, how, uh, how did you find him? Was he uh, was he was, was he a pleasant I, guy I, to be around? Uh, yeah, and I knew him the whole of my life. Then you know, and uh, I was fantastic. All the great blues musicians are fantastic, you know. And uh, I've the only times I've run into attitudes is with people who are not the great blues musicians right, and yeah. uh john was fantastic uh, a regular guy and uh, even up until in his 80s uh and uh you know he'd have his star socks on his glasses on you know he'd be the yeah. the boogie vo man whatever you know yeah. and uh but uh, you know that was just you know he had that dangerous thing going all the time but of course he was nothing like that and uh, the very first time i met him we had uh, back in the 60s we would rent a club to rehearse in and this particular day we, we knew john was coming from the states and we're going to do the tour together we rented the ram jam club i don't know if you're right. you're familiar with the ram jam i know the club. name i'm a bit too young to have been there but yeah I know it, the name. it used yeah. to be in, it used to be in brixton and so we rented it out it was in the afternoon and we were uh, you know and uh, we figured yeah we'll, we'll rehearse with you know with john get ready for the tour so he comes in and with my brother i think my brother must have picked him up at the uh, airport or something he came in and said, what am i doing here and i said well, we're rehearsing, John. I don't rehearse. And he turned around and walked out. So he was like, okay. Right, yeah. So this is, you know, real blues men don't rehearse. So uh, <laughs> I'll so tell you a funny story rehearse. about a rehearsal that I had once with um, 
you might, you might remember the guys. He was um, a child prodigy. He was called Sugar Child Robinson. He used to play the boogie woogie piano. Just a, just a little kid. Oh, yeah. Anyway, he was uh, rediscovered again a few years later. And um, it was my job to back him up at this, uh, this festival. And he turned up and he was still that tall. He was still exactly the same height. It was, it was odd. Anyway, he came, he wandered up onto the stage and he sat down on the piano and he started playing this just kind of scales sort of thing. It was almost like hotel lobby music. It was, it was a bit weird. It was a bit weird. And I'm looking at the bass player and the bass player's looking at me and we're going, well, don't know, don't know, I don't know what that is. Don't know. We worked out, it's, it's in F sharp. It's in F sharp. So we're, just sort of, we're trying to sort of groove with him and he's just playing scales kind of thing. Anyway, he sort of does a little little flourish, and then he puts the lid down on, on the piano, and he goes, yeah, that's it. They're all in F sharp. They all go like that, just faster or slower. I'll see you later. And he got <laughs> off from the piano, and he walked. He walked. It was in a big a big hall at a big festival, and there was a, there was a, there was a record stall at the back of the room. And he walked straight up to the record stall. He went through the records. He found his own CD, bought it, and disappeared. <laughs> we didn't see him until the evening then. It was, uh, it was strange. He finally turned up five minutes before the, before the gig. Oh, He's got a bit of paper. We say to him, is, is that the set list? Is that the set list? And he went, yeah, it's mine. <laughs> he wouldn't let us see the set list. It was like, oh, it was one of the most strangest gigs I've ever been on. It only lasted 25 minutes and that was it. He got up and walked off. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a strange one. Sugar Charles Robinson. Uh, yeah. That's the there great thing about this business. The, the stories are remar remarkable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you wouldn't there, you wouldn't believe it, I tell you. Yeah. Um, listen, I want to get back to the early days. And so we've heard how you got into blues music, but how was it you got into the guitar specifically? Was it um, just through listening to those blues songs that really drew you to the guitar was there something else was it uh you know was it you know because you thought the guitar would get all the girls or something what, what was it that drew you to the guitar yeah yeah girls weren't in the the picture uh it was uh i'd always liked the sound of the guitar since um rock around the uh, rock around the clock by bill haley had that great guitar yeah. solo then i got a guitar should I tell you my first guitar story? Absolutely. Yeah, we want to hear that. Yeah. yeah. So I wanted to play guitar, but it was right out of the blue, you know. Uh, and I, so I I felt too embarrassed to say to my parents, you know, I, I want to play guitar because my background, you know, there's nothing like that in right. my background with the family. So uh, I, I saw in the back of my parents' crossword puzzle book, I saw an ad for a guitar. And it was right next to the Charles Atlas ad. Charles Atlas was a yeah. strong man. And at, the, and at the top, it said, make friends at school. That was the big thing. So I thought, oh, I'll get myself a guitar and I'll, I'll make some friends, you know. And so uh, I sent, saved my money up. I had a paper round. Saved my money up, sent away for the guitar. Weeks went by. You know, so it was like, okay, this is some kind of scam. Even back then, you know, this. Yeah. And uh, I said, that's it. They've taken my money and gone. But I looked up the bedroom window one day. I could see it clearly. And there was the postman walking down the street with this big box. And I was like, that's, that's, that has to be the guitar. So I ran down to the front door. I could see this like daylight. Got the box, ran up to my bedroom and opened it. And... One thing the manufacturers failed to tell me was it came unassembled. And it, 
<laughs> it was an acoustic guitar, so it was all in bits. So I had just put together my Japanese transistor radio, which was a big thing to do as a kid back then. You'd get all the parts and you'd put it together. Maybe, you know, it still is in some way. But so I put the transistor radio together. And I could get, you know, Luxembourg and that. So I thought, hey, I, I, I could surely put this guitar together. So I put the guitar together. What, what, what do I do now? And I kind of uh, found out that there was a gentleman in my area that knew a bit about guitar. So I took it to him and said, I have no idea what to do to tune it. What, what do you do? But I did take that guitar to school to make friends when, on, on like a school trip yeah. or some stuff like that. And, and everybody says, wow, you're good. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm not, not doing anything. Can't anybody, anybody do this? You know? And so that was a surprise to me that I thought, well, I'm doing nothing. And yet people thought it was pretty good. So um, there's my story. I put the guitar together, locked myself in that bedroom for about two years and uh, just kept playing the guitar. And lo and behold, two years later, I come out of the room and <laughs> hallelujah, I can play guitar. So that's my guitar story. It's as easy as that, kids. That's all you got to do. Lock yourself in a bedroom for two years and yeah, play the guitar. Uh, I, I'm desperate to know what happened to that guitar. Well, I take it it's not I, still around now, is it? That's not still around, but an old pal of mine from London has – then I moved on to an electric guitar. I realised very quickly that uh, – if I was going to be an electric guitarist, I better not continue with the acoustic guitar because, as we know, you can become an acoustic guitarist and it's very difficult to switch to electric and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, so I thought, oops, I'm going to put this down quickly and get myself an electric guitar that I want to be play electric guitar. Um, and this would have been 63, uh, something like that. And I bought myself a Hohner, a Hofner, a Hofner, Hofner guitar. yeah, yeah. And it was the three copy of the three thirty five, and a friend of mine in uh, in London still has that guitar, so uh, <laughs> so that's pretty that's pretty cool. But no, the acoustic yeah. one that's probably long gone. <laughs> Firewood now. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody may have it somewhere. Yeah, yeah, probably locked themselves in the way in a bedroom for a couple of years and uh, with right, it. yeah, yeah, then maybe they do yeah. it. But but yeah. the Hofner, yeah. I couldn't. I couldn't sort of be virtuoso type playing on the Hofner. I realized quickly that, um, you know, I had to get a, a, a guitar that I could really, you know, uh, solo on because primarily I'm a soloist, you know, for, yeah. for most of those early years, I couldn't play uh, rhythm guitar for the life of me. You know, I was just, I was primarily a soloist. That's what I wanted to be. And so I had to have a, a guitar neck that I could, I could play solos. So, uh, after a couple of years of, uh, you know, being locked away in a bedroom, then getting an electric guitar. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about Savoy Brown. How, I mean, how did that come about? What was the, what was the thing that sparked that off? Uh, I had quit school at 15 in, uh, in late 63 to, uh, to go into the world, you know, primarily to play guitar. Yeah. And you know, found that I couldn't play guitar, you know, and it's a big wide world. So I got myself a job as a clerk at the uh, Ministry of Defence and, uh, you know, took the civil service exam. I figured, whoops, I've made a mistake here. I'd better get myself a proper job with a proper pension, you know, which I did do. And I was playing guitar and I was going to a store at, in Soho called Transat Imports where uh, – 
John Mayer would go, I'd see him there and a bunch of people. We'd all get our um, American import records yeah. from this store. It was a basement store in Soho. And one day, I, it was open, maybe it was open at 10 o'clock in the morning, I got there and uh, it was raining. It wasn't open. I was in the doorway and another fella stood by me out of the rain and uh, we started talking. And uh, But what we liked, the music we liked. And uh, so, uh, you know, it turns out that uh, it was John O'Leary. And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, I play harmonica. And I, I've met little Walter. I said, are you kidding me? He said, yeah. He had met and smoked to little Walter on those folk blues tours. Right, John was yeah. a, little old, a couple of years older than me. And uh, so I said, oh, I play guitar. And he said, yeah. He said, where do you live? He said, Wandsworth. I said, oh. He said, he's just down the road from me. So uh, we said, let's have a record session. So. Uh, uh, I went to his place, and wouldn't you know, he had a Cobra 78 by Otis Rush called Grown in the Blues. And I remember him putting this on, and it was like, oh, you've got to be kidding. This is, this is like the best drug I've ever taken. We decided to form a band. I think I, think I was probably the prime instigator of the whole thing. I, I think I said something. We were discussing how to start it. Uh, I saw John last year, and, and we have never really got together to talk about this, and I'd love to talk to him about it because he might remember more than I remember. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we eventually said, he said, I know a f it used to be a folk club, he said, at a pub called The Nags Head. And because uh, I said, let's, you know, let's, let's play it, let's get this going somehow. And so we went to the pub, and it was empty now, the, the folk club, that folk craze gone. But there was a there was an upstairs room, and there was an, just an open room with you know chairs around the perimeter. But there was a stage about a foot off the off the ground, and I said, you know, John, this is. I'm not sure if I said, you know, John, but I said uh, my, my my thing was, you know, this is fantastic. I can rehearse the band here on stage in real time. Yeah, this is very, very important. I think if anybody's listening and watching about this, is how you get ahead with a career. Is you know you're not rehearsing in your bedroom, you're not rehearsing here. You've got the band on a stage, and I said I'm going to open this. We're going to play, and we're going to open to the public. And uh, so we rehearsed from uh, it was the winter of '65. We rehearsed and. In early '66, we opened the Nags Head, the Nags Head, and we called it Kilroy's. It became a a, a bona fide venue, and Freddie King yeah. played there. Fleetwood Mac came and played there. And amazingly, with the internet, um, an Englishman who's just emigrated to New Zealand wrote me because he found out we went to the same school, uh, Spencer Park in Wandsworth. And he sent me a photo. So I think this is you. We have become friends. Uh, but anyway, this was about about two months ago. You wrote me, and he was there at the very first show. He said he was walking home from his girlfriend's in uh, in Wandsworth, and he hears this band. Sounds like the Muddy Waters band. <laughs> so he goes upstairs, and of course, it was uh, it was me with Savoy Brown. And uh, he said there were six people there. And I remember there were six people originally. I'm saying six, it might be seven, five. And uh, so uh, the remark, what I love about the current technology is, you know, we can get in touch, I can actually get in touch with somebody. 
because sometimes I think it's a dream. Did it actually happen? Am I just giving you a bunch of BS? You know, and all of a sudden someone's, yeah, I was there. You sounded exactly like the like the Muddy Waters band because that was my intention. And uh, we had put some flyers up in London. Before you knew it, it was packed. It was mobbed. We were a big success. We were the talk of Battersea, you know, that South London area. It was the epicenter of blues, which is lost in, in British history. So I'll have to write you know, my books. I'm writing my book. And uh, Mike Vernon, who had just um, who had his own label called Blue Horizon, he had recorded uh, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton. He came and said, I'd like to do some singles with you. So we did two, two or three singles with Mike for the Blue Horizon label. Mike also was then producing for Decca Records. He produced uh, the Beano album with Neil and, and Eric Clapton. And then Savoy Brown was the next uh, album for Decca that he produced. So uh, I was, we were off and running uh, in 66. The band was fantastic. You know, I, I regret very much that John left the band. The, you know, John O'Leary, who played the harp, he left. And uh, so I had, you know, then I was left to, to go a different direction. And uh, what I regret is I'll never know what that band could have been like. I'd never know what kind of guitar player I would have been. London at that time, the sort of mid sixties, it was it was literally like the epicenter of blues, wasn't it? It exploded right. with blues bands and you know such great bands. Who was well it exploded about... in it exploded in sixty seven, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, who who out of all those bands really caught your eye and, and made you think, God, oh, they're a great oh, band? Fleetwood Mac? You kidding me? It was just like yeah. Why bother? You know, it's, I mean, the rhythm <laughs> yeah. section. I mean, Mick Fleetwood, Peter Green, Jeremy with his doing the Elmo thing. It was just yeah. like, oh, man. Uh, you know, the first time I saw them was when they played at the uh, at the Nags Head in Battersea. And uh, I went along, I think I jammed that night. And uh, the uh, they, they were phenomenal. And they they were, I was heavily under the influence of Peter then for the longest time, you know, and and we all are, you know, and uh, yeah. he, you know, he'd play dun, 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 you know, and, and they'd be looking at him as if he was Segovia, you know, <laughs> it used to freak him out. It was like, I, I'm just, you know, I, <laughs> the adulation uh, was, yeah. was ridiculous. Yeah. And of course, Eric, Eric had that uh, a couple of years earlier when I used to follow, um, Mail and Eric, right from the very first gig they did in uh, one of the first gigs at the Flamingo Club, I was at. Just to bring it right up to date, how how differently do you think the blues scene is now? I mean, it's obviously it's, it's, it, it, the blues has always been a beast that's kind of grown and changed as it's gone along. I mean, it's quite different from that '60s vibe now. But how, what do you think of the current health of the blues scene? Um, it's it's difficult to talk about it in connection to to the 60s uh, because in in some ways nothing has changed right. you know people are still playing a les ball through a marshall or a telecaster yeah. through a vox ac30 which was my first professional setup was the telecaster through through an ac30 and uh, people are still playing that people are still looking like they come from the 1960s so yeah. in many yeah. ways it hasn't changed at all and and in many ways it has uh, the process of starting the band, being a musician, are exactly the same as they were back then. Uh, you you start in a garage with a bunch of friends, or wherever you wherever you do, you're in your bedroom, or 
you know. Uh, so in many ways, it hasn't changed. It, it's very, very difficult because it's a very small part of the, uh, you know, music scene. Uh, when I started Savoy Brown, I went to Bob Hall, who he's a pianist, yeah. and I wanted him to join the band because he had played with the Groundhogs a couple of years previously in 63. So at 65, I went to Bob's house. And he did his best to convince me not to start a blues band. He said, no, you won't make any money. It's a useless thing, you know. So I was lucky to form a blues band, took it into the charts in America, and it became part of the mainstream, you know, because when I started, it was negligible in terms of maybe 1%, you know, of the uh, music scene. So nowadays, it's about 1% of the music scene. And unless you have a Stevie Ray Vaughan come along, uh, you know, who can now, you know, um, bring it onto the radio, bring it onto the halftime Super Bowl shows, you know, unless you can really crack the mainstream, which is what George Thorogood and, you know, later on and beyond the 60s period, George Thorogood and people like that, they brought it, you know, you, uh, the, we don't have those people right now. We have great musicians uh, that I enjoy, and uh, I listen to. I try to listen to everybody, uh, but the current blues scene probably is lacking. You know, uh, uh, someone that's going to take the music into the mainstream, because then we all benefit. Right. You know, yeah. the fact that um, you know uh, people went before me, like uh, Eric Clapton, and so forth you know, uh, made it possible. Well, John Mayall in particular with Eric literally made it possible for me because they would go into a club that, and, and uh, you know, like a, they were all dance clubs back then, but they would go into a club and suddenly, you know, a hundred college kids would show up and the promoter would go, oh, there's something here. Have you got another band like that? And so I would follow along, you know, uh, luckily on John's um Coattails, is it? Is that the expression? Yes. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and it's the same now. You know, you need, you know, we've got some great musicians. And, uh, and in many ways they have. In many ways, Joe Bonamassa, for instance, comes immediately to mind. He has cracked yeah. the bigger world, you know. Just needs that kick into the mainstream again. I just, right, uh, it, uh, it yeah. really does, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 I've been talking to a few people this week, blues musicians from from all over the place. Particularly, I've been talking to a few American blues musicians who have left America and gone to live in Europe, in, in Switzerland or in Scandinavia or something. Uh, and here you are, uh, uh, f from Britain, from Great Britain, uh, you know, starting off in Wales, moving to London, and now you're living in America. So it's, it's a reverse. What was it that, uh, that, that made you move to America in the first place? I was uh, married to an American girl one thing and america is such a complicated country that you know you can yeah. go back and forth with your feelings you know you can think it's great it's not great it is great great eventually it was like it's great and uh so i uh i kind of always wanted to you know this is where the music comes from that i love uh i wanted to compete uh in in the world in the world of blues which uh, primarily was American, you know. That's where my all my success came from. Was 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 in America, so uh, you know the ability for me to buy a house and things. So by the end of the seventies, I was touring over there a lot, away for months, and coming home, and 
that factor was going on, then before you knew it, the music scene changed immensely in the 70s. You know, now you've got punk bands everywhere. I went to see The Clash at the Marquee. I like The Clash, but it was like very foreign music to me. Interestingly, when I went to the side of the stage, it had Savoy Brown all over the PA. They had bought our old PA. So, uh, so, uh, but it was like, you know, I, I felt sort of, I felt completely like uh, um, useless. It was like, you know, I'm a blues guitar player playing 15 minute, you know, solos on the guitar, yeah. you know, hopefully uh, of a high standard. And, you know, nobody wanted that. You know, I was a dinosaur. Two-minute long records, then, wasn't it? As fast as yeah. you could go. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Hit, hit a few splash chords, you know. Yeah. Draw the stick man artistically and you were fine, you know. Yeah. All of a sudden, I was painting, like, big, you know, landscapes, you know, and, like, well, this guy's, you know, belongs to the Victorian age. So uh, <laughs> it was so that those are the kind of factors, American wife, and said, you know, that's it. I am going to... Uh, yeah, my career, I didn't think, was really going too far. And uh, so I packed my whole household belongings up into a, into a ship's container, including a grand piano, and just shipped everything over to Ohio. Then, then it was very hard work, you know, because suddenly you, know, you speak the same language, but you're in a culture that is quite a bit different. Very different, um, yeah, yeah. Very, very, very different. So I would think it would took me about 10 years, believe it or not, before I um, really, uh, but I was committed, you know, to seeing it out, you know, and I didn't go back to England for seven years, only because I made a commitment, you know, I didn't have one foot in one country and one foot in the other, you know, I thought this was my future was in America. And it and I'm going to make that commitment, which I did, and uh, very very hard years. Uh, uh, and and I spoke the language, and I knew America, and I was married to an American, but it was still very very hard because uh, you know the my the I say Englishness, the Britishness was ingrained in me, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but I've been here now for longer than I ever have been in uh, in uh, in the UK. So. Uh, it's it's worked out very well, uh, and and you're talking about how has the music changed? And nothing much has changed. I played last January before the virus hit. I played yeah. the Hundred Club, oh, and it was like nice. I had my old road manager with me in the UK, and when I toured Europe, that was with me at the very beginning. Yeah, and, and when and we had to find the Hundred Club, and he lives in the, he lives in uh, in England, and. Uh, wouldn't you know, there's the back entrance. It was just yep. like, it's just 67. You know, so it was ex- yep. nothing had changed. It was like, so <laughs> it's remarkable in life how everything changes, the old expression, and nothing changes. And it was fantastic yeah. to actually, you know, pull into the courtyard behind the 100 Club. Yeah. And it Learned was like. place back there. Yeah, it was yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> it was just like, yeah, this is fantastic. Do I miss that? Of course, I miss that. You know, what I mean, I, I miss that part of of uh, living in the UK, where uh, yeah, yeah. you know I can uh, you know have that wonderful uh, sentimentality, you know, and it's still there. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm so glad that the hundred club is still there, and like you say, it hasn't hasn't really changed very much, has it? I mean, there's a little bit more sweat on the ceiling, I think, and uh, <laughs> obviously, one big thing is they've got a proper dressing room now, which is it's streets ahead of how it used to be, isn't it? I mean, you must have some some nightmare stories about dressing rooms from the, from the hundred club, yeah, from, from years ago. <laughs> I, oh, I remember playing the Newcastle a go go, was it called the Newcastle a go go? Uh, in the 60s and you couldn't leave the dressing room because you'd get beat up it was like <laughs> nice. it, it was incredible you know and there were signs there you know like we were I, I, we were not uh we're not responsible if you leave this place so it, wow. yeah that, that the hundred club was it was a, astonishingly fun night you know and uh but what do I remember for the early days the, the flamingo club uh, most of all uh that was great place, but uh, but all the places were were fantastic, and rules were more lenient. So at fifteen, right, okay. you know, you could go into pubs, you could yeah, go wherever yeah. you wanted to. Uh, we're almost out of time, Kim, but um, there's, there's always one question I like to finish these things up with, and it's uh, it's a little convoluted, it's a little bit crazy, but um, I'll, I'll explain it to you, and you can see what you think. So uh, all right, so okay. here it comes. Here's my my killer end question. Okay. Yep. I want you to imagine, if you can, that we are in the future, okay? A few years into the future. and um, You're going to give me a few years? Well, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You might have a couple of robot parts, maybe, keeping you going or something, I don't know. But, uh, but you're definitely still with us, still playing, still hot as ever. Um, and anyway, the world is quite a nice place in the future, in this future that we've made. It's, it, it's, it's a lovely place. Everybody's kind of rubbing along great now. And it's, you know, it's getting the world's a good place. And we're just we're out to do things. Yeah. Right. And the whole thing's held together with this world president who everybody thinks is doing a great job. And it's, it's great. Oh, yeah, yeah, an, imaginary, an imaginary world president. Is that what you're throwing Yeah, at sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, everything's going great uh, until we get the news that we have three days left. There's a huge meteorite coming towards the Earth. Uh, it's it's the size of like Pluto or something. No, Ju Jupiter. It's it's absolutely. It's going to completely obliterate the Earth. There's going to be nothing left whatsoever. So the world president gets on the phone to you, and uh, he or she is. Uh, it says Kim. Um, listen, I'm sure you've heard about the uh, the asteroid that's coming. You know, we've only got three days left. Look, we're going to put together a big, huge world party. Um, everybody's going to go out in, in in fine fashion. We're just going to party on until you know the end. Um, he says to you, "Look, we need a really, really great band. We want you to put together a special band for uh, this world party, and uh, we want you to play the last song." So, what I want to know is. Who is going to be in this special band of yours? And what is going to be the last song played on planet Earth by you? Um, do these do these have to be musicians living right now? I mean, and, or well, in the future? This is in the future, so we have holograms. You can have holograms of anybody oh, okay. you want. can come and play on stage. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah, everybody always asks that. It's a good question. And, yeah, you go <laughs> with whatever you want. Whoever you need, you've got them. Oh, now I've got to think of all the musicians because, you know, it's like when people say, who was that actor in the movie? And you cannot possibly remember who Sean Connery was. You know, uh, it, uh, <laughs> I would, well, we're talking about this, we're talking about this, the 60s. So I would say, I want to recreate the great British blues band, you know, from that time period. Oh, yeah. So I would have, uh, 
Eric Clapton on guitar. It, it, was, it would be three guitar. Well, actually, there would be no room for me. I don't know. I'd just be the producer. <laughs> I'd have Stevie Winwood playing guitar, Peter Green, I'd have Eric. They'd be playing guitar right up front. And uh, I would have John Mayle playing harmonica. Yeah. I would, uh, or maybe I would have, um, uh, you know, uh, from the Alexis Corner band, uh, the harmonica plays. I would have John O'Leary. I don't know. I, I would have a, a an orchestra of British blues musicians from the sixties. Right. And uh, what would I do in it? I would uh, I would just be playing. I'd be strumming in the background. You know. Yeah. Actually, I, I can't <laughs> strum very well. So I I, I would uh, yeah I would. Because we talk with you know that's 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 what we primarily have talked about. So I would yeah. think that uh, you know I, I would have an orchestra full of the uh, the sixties musicians I grew up with. So, uh, so with all those blues players on stage together at one time, uh, they're all taking a solo. This song's going to go on for quite a long time. Right? It's going to be a long <laughs> song. Yeah, <laughs> we've only got three days until the asteroid hits. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, with in terms of drummers. Um, uh, my favorite, you know, my favorite drummer is the drummer that played on the Little Richard records, played on the Jimmy Reed, some of the Jimmy Reed records. Earl Palmer, I, right? Earl Palmer. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, he's my favorite yeah. old drummer. So uh, he, you know, if it was going to be a band, uh, he would certainly be the drummer I would want to play with. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, bass player. Now you've got me on the sixties thing, so I, I'm thinking Jack Bruce. Uh, yep. It it uh, the uh, it would probably be Willie Dixon on bass, oh, yeah. Earl Palmer on drums, Earl Hooker would have to be playing guitar on slide. Uh, I would say Freddie King. I'd like to be the third guitar player, and <laughs> uh, you know that's a pretty good start for a band i would that's think uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, i would yeah. maybe paul butterfield on harmonica what uh, would the song be what would this, oh what, oh yes what would the, the song, song be? of course the song, there's no question about the song it would, it would be muddy waters louisiana blues oh. that's my favorite all-time blues song right. and i hope that uh, when the time comes when i have to go after the greater eternity i hope that uh, that's the song they'll play for me well to it's go. gonna be a while yet don't worry, don't forget you're gonna get those robot parts to keep you going and all that you'll be, you'll be with us for a while yet definitely. well I, so, i've got yeah. i've already got through a couple of you know uh, close encounters uh, <laughs> and i'm still here so uh, yeah uh kim it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you today uh we could we could sit here talking for hours i know you've got so many great stories but uh, but unfortunately our time is up for this one but uh I just want to say, uh, keep on doing what you're doing. Everyone loves it. You, you know, uh, your, your music and your guitar playing is inspirational. Uh, oh, and, thank uh, you so much. And, and fantastic. And I want to hear many, many more albums. I know you've got something like 43 albums out already, 45 albums. Let, let's, let's get it to 100 at least, okay? So uh, just keep doing it. Oh, man. It, it, it brings tears to my eyes. I really appreciate that very much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Kim. All the best, and uh, I hope to see you on the road somewhere soon, sometime. You never know, eh? Yeah, right, I'd like to see you play as well. So let's uh, let's get up there together. It's You're welcome date. to jam, okay? <laughs> Anytime you bring your guitar along. Sounds great, man. <laughs> Take care. So if you've enjoyed this, why not like and subscribe to the Blues Podcast right now? All right. <laughs>